You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on December 9th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Accidents Happen. Music was performed by Joe Clark. Our first speaker tonight is Bill Dillon. Bill has worked as a teacher, a therapist, and an organizational development consultant, three different approaches to helping people take more control of their lives. He is now retired, and after 10 years of travel via sailboat and recreational vehicle, is happily living in Juneau. Please welcome Bill to the stage. Good evening. Accidents will happen. Here's one that happened to me about 60 years ago that had quite an impact on my life direction. I grew up in Boston in neighborhoods that were working class, blue collar tenement houses. And in 1953, when I was 17, I graduated from high school and promptly joined the US Navy. Went to boot camp and from there they sent me to a station near San Diego for six months for training, and then told me I was going to be shipped to Japan for two years. I wanted to go home and visit before going that far for that long, but my $84 a month salary didn't accommodate the cost of a flight. Then I learned that the Navy had a program whereby I could borrow the money from them and pay it back by going on half pay until it was paid up. I did that. So I went home on leave, and then I wound up in Japan with a salary of $42 a month, which didn't provide me much money to go down and look at the arts and ills of Yokohama. So I often found myself, when not on watch, all alone in the barracks with more time on my hands than I needed. So pretty much for the first time in my life, I found myself getting into reading, and thanks to the library on the base, I got to look at Hemingway and Steinbeck and Faulkner and Salinger and on and on. That was really, really helpful. Then one Sunday morning, coming off a watch from midnight to eight, I again found myself alone in the barracks. And I noticed that I had nothing available right now to read. Couldn't go to the library because the library was used for religious services on Sunday. So I found myself scrounging around the barracks, can I find anything to read? I came across a book of poetry on someone's rack, open. And never hadn't been interested in poetry, but any port in a storm, they say in the Navy, nothing else to do. So I picked it up and I read the poem on the open page. It was by a poet named Vachel Lindsay. The name of it was The Leaden Eyed. And it goes like this. Let not young souls be smothered out before they do quaint deeds and fully flaunt their pride. It is the world's one crime, its babes grow dull. Its poor are ox-like, limp, and leaden-eyed. Not that they starve, but starve so dreamlessly. Not that they sow, but that they seldom reap. Not that they serve, but have no gods to serve. Not that they die, but that they die like sheep. I was stunned. 
No such idea had ever come close to crossing my mind, and here this man had so succinctly laid it out, and that seemed to me to be pretty accurate. That happens to millions of people. I couldn't believe how well he laid it out there. The next page was John Dunn's 93rd Canto. I had never heard of him. That's the one that is no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Again, I was amazed. It had never occurred to me that we people would be connected in that way. I was busy copying Russian submarines at the time and didn't feel that connected to them. So from there, for the rest of the day, I went from one to the next to the next. I went from Robert Browning to Robert Frost to Dorothy Parker, just on and on. I was just amazed at what I found. At that time in my life, 18 years old, I had abandoned my Irish Catholic upbringing and was floundering around struggling with meaning of life ideas. To that end, I had dabbled a bit in philosophy and psychology and theology. And now I suddenly find these poets saying all sorts of insightful things about what it means to be a person, and I had never even touched it before. It was quite a remarkable find. I got hooked that day on poetry. And I remained hooked. I, in the years that have gone since then, I seem to have acquired dozens and dozens and dozens of lines of poetry in my head, and they float around just below my awareness, and then somebody makes a comment, and up pops a line or a poem or whatever. So I'll close by reciting a poem that is a bit of a philosophical insight in how one might go about life. The name of this poem is the Lesson of the Moth. It comes from Don Marquis, Archie and Mehitable. And as you may know, Archie was a cockroach who was a poet in a former life, and he jumped on typewriter keys to write poetry. This is one of them. I was talking to a moth the other evening. He was trying to break into an electric light bulb and fry himself on the wires. Why do you fellows pull this stunt, I asked him because it's the conventional thing for Mars to do? Or why, if that had been an uncovered candle, you would now be a small, unsightly cinder? Have you no sense? Plenty, he said. But at times, we get tired of using it. We get bored with the routine, and we crave beauty and excitement. Fire is beautiful, and we know that if we get too close, it'll kill us. But what does that matter? It's better to be happy for a moment and then be burned up in beauty than it is to live a long life and be bored all the while. So we ward all our life up into one little roll and then we shoot the roll. That's what life is for. It's better to be part of beauty for an instant and then cease to exist than it is to exist forever and never be a part of beauty. Our attitude life is go easy, come easy. We're like human beings used to be before they became too civilized to enjoy themselves. And before I could argue him out of his philosophy, he went and immolated himself on a patent cigar lighter. <laughs> Myself, I do not agree. I'll take half the excitement and twice the longevity. At the same time, I sure wish there was something that I wanted. 
as badly as that moth wanted to fry himself. So thank you for listening and be careful what you read. It may grab you and change your life. Our next speaker tonight is Crystal Dooley. Crystal transferred into Juneau in July 2010 with the Coast Guard, stocked up on way too much cold weather running gear, and figured she would just stay to make sure she gets her money out of it. That was 2010. And previously known for her crockpot mudroom story, Crystal is a veteran here, Crystal traded her crockpot in for hardcore baking addiction and has been making pumpkin spice flavored things since September 15th. She says she can stop but she just doesn't want to, and only God can judge her. Please welcome Crystal. Hi, everyone. If I look famous to you, it's probably because I'm small town famous. I'm small town famous for a lot of things. A runner, the lone marine pilot coordinator of the state of Alaska, stress baking and ruining everyone's diets, and speaking at this mudrooms thing once a year. Another great reason I'm famous? my driving and parking skills, or more plainly, my lack of. When I told my friends I'd be speaking about my bad driving, they asked if seven minutes was really enough. When I was 17, my family lived in Anchorage, and it was decided I had to stop freeloading rides and learn how to drive. My dad was nominated for this job, and I was a miserable failure. I almost hit a parked car in the service high school parking lot and gave my dad whiplash attempting to drive stick shift. The whole gas clutch brake thing was entirely too much for my brain and dad's neck to handle. So it was time for the driving professionals. Class was in the evening for two hours a night for about five evenings, and on the last day, I would be given the driver's test. The driver would pick me up at home, would drive around for a while. He'd drop me back. On the night of the test, the instructor picked me up and said to my mother, Mrs. Hudak, Crystal won't pass the driver's test, but I just want to put her through it. Guess what, guys? I passed by one point. That's right. I passed the driver's test with one Saturday afternoon dodging parked cars and maybe 10 hours behind the wheel of a car. Thus, the instructor had to drop me back off at my house and tell my mom, and I quote, Mrs. Hudak, just because the state of Alaska says your daughter can drive doesn't mean she can. I recommend she has more lessons and drives with an adult for a long time. <laughs> when my parents wanted to use the two-mile drive to church as a driving lesson, my sister pitched a fit. She said she didn't want to die. So my parents bribed her with a bag of gummy bears, which now I know my sister's life is valued at about $3. <laughs> my parents left shortly afterwards for a funeral, and I was left in charge with a jangling pair of car keys. After a week of using any excuse to drive around, I realized mom and dad didn't tell me how to get gas. And that was the first time I completely embarrassed myself backing into something. And with awesome driving comes awesome parking. You've probably seen my car. It's a blue CRV, just like everyone else's. And since this is Juno and we all drive Subarus or CRVs, it's caused some confusion. Last week, I was convinced my car door was frozen shut and I was prying the door open in the Alaska Club parking lot. That wasn't my CRV. I've loaded skis into the back seat while parked at Eagle Crest and then noticed the baby seat in the passenger side. I don't have a baby. And thus, it now has two bumper stickers. My parking is a spectator sport on Marguerite Street where I live. 
My friend Liz and her husband Matt live across the street, and their kitchen window gives them a perfect view for the parking show. So there I am, getting ready to turn and back into my driveway, and I'll see Liz stop mid-raise of the coffee cup to get ready for the show. Then I watch her wave over Matt so, so they can watch together. Am I the type of person that can park under pressure? No way. One time, I was attempting a three-point turn by moving the back end of the car around a trash can. My neighbors watched me back into the trash can, go forward, straighten out, then back into the trash can a second time and drive off. <laughs> I backed into the same trash can twice. I also backed into my neighbor's van and left a gorgeous ding. They priced out the repair and then moved before actually fixing the car. I dodged that one. He would be the second neighbor in the second location I backed into. I get fan mail for my parking roughly once a month. You're probably wondering how I survive downtown Juneau when the parking garages are full. Friends, I walk a lot. One time, I found a parallel parking spot outside of the Alaskan, and I was so proud of myself that I posted a picture on Facebook. I did great. I got so many likes. And then in a moment of alcohol-induced honesty, Liz admitted it was a terrible parking job, but she didn't want to crush my enthusiasm. This week's great driving moment was brought to you by The Play Chicago. I was picking up my friend and tonight mudroom speaker, Seth, to carpool over, and I parked outside his front door on Gastineau Street. For those not familiar with Gastineau Street, Gastineau is a narrow street above the Alaskan where only the toughest of parallel parkers would dare to venture. If you have two vehicles in a head-on situation, a vehicle has to slowly back into a parallel parking spot so the second vehicle can pass. But there's no way to know which vehicle will divert and let the other vehicle by. I text Seth and I wait a minute, and then I realize a very large truck is coming up the street while I'm facing down. Seth is nowhere to be seen. There's nothing I can do except back up and pray to the parking gods I don't love to have someone else's car. Soon, there's a second vehicle behind the truck. I'm attempting to badly back up, and Seth walks out. He immediately runs to the back of my car to flag what direction to crank the wheel and realizes it's a lost cause. He yells, hey, do you want me to drive? I yell, yes! I'm sure both cars are making woman driver jokes watching me get out of the car. Well, the theme of this month is accidents happen, and you're ready for a good wreck story, right? The story where I should be dead, but somehow, miraculously, I'm standing in front of you. Call it divine intervention, the fact God loves fools, or maybe I'm that good of a Texan driver, but I haven't had a major wreck, unless hitting trash cans, neighbors' cars, flower beds, snow berms, and mailboxes count. Our next speaker is Michael Orr. Michael is like a dog. He's loyal, hairy, happy most of the time, and accident prone. His story tonight is about how he came to be on this stage and the long series of missteps that led to it. Accidents happen. <laughs> All right, so just to get this started, I was born in Miami, Florida. And that's where I grew up for most of my life. And uh, I in a fit of whimsy, decided that I needed to have a complete change, of, uh, complete change of pace. And so I wanted to make my fortune by coming up to Alaska and working in a cannery. And uh, judging from the laughs in the audience, I'm sure some of you know how incredibly misguided that idea was. 
I get all the money together and I come up here and I find out that working in a cannery is like slave labor. It's probably the worst thing I've ever done in my entire life. In fact, that would be a perfect story for the first job, a worst job topic. Oh my God. Never again. <laughs> so I lasted about two weeks. And after my first paycheck, I ran away from the cannery and in at this moment, I am trapped in Sitka. I have like $200 to my name, and I have no way to get home. And it's you know starting to get a little chilly up here, and uh, I'm getting a little worried. So I run to the nearest cannery, and I ask for a job. <laughs> and I get the job, and it is, uh, it's not as bad. You know, I get to clean all night a knee-deep in fish guts. It was lots of fun, and it turns out fish have a lot of multicolored things inside of them. It's really amazing, actually. Uh, and I feel like it's important to mention at this point that part of the reason I was so desperate to make my fortune is because I had this girlfriend back in Florida, and I was... I was desperate to make a ton of money to go home to my Bonnie Lass and start a new life together and just, you know, leave, leave the past in the rearview mirror and just ride off into the sunset. That's definitely not what happened at all. <laughs> um, another reason why I came up here is because I was desperate to leave my old life behind. Not per se my girlfriend, but just the lifestyle that I had really grown up ingrained in. And um, as I've learned, anywhere I go, I take me with me. And so <laughs> I didn't get to escape myself. I slowly fell back into old habits. And those habits left me four days from my trip back to Florida with $100 to my name. And I was freaking the hell out. Like, I had no idea what I was going to do. So I'm spending time with this guy that like, I met in town. And I don't know how well some of you know this, but you make really fast friends while under the influence. Like, let me tell you. Yeah, man, oh, we're going to start a business and oh, we're gonna be brothers forever. That was the kind of friend that I had like at this point and I'm really freaking out, you know, because I, I have this girl who's like just sending me all these crazy messages about how she's gonna get married and you know, how I'm gonna come home and just save everything and that's like not what's gonna happen at all. And so my friend, because I was totally harshing his vibe, he's like, hey man, take, take these and you'll feel much better. So I took eight of them my Friday night just got off to a really good kicking start. I gave him a black eye, which was great, because to this day, he still deserves a lot more. I started making a lot of really terrible, terrible choices. After the black eye, which is amazing that he even listened to me at this point, I told him that my, that my path in life was to be a cat burglar and that I was going to crawl up into the ceiling of Lakeside Grocery and I was gonna make my way over to the pharmacy, rob it, and then sell everything and make enough money to go home to my girlfriend, the conquering hero. I'm still here, so that's obviously not what happened. I made it about halfway through, and in my intoxicated state, I wasn't sure how far I'd made it, so I crawled back down to the ceiling and fell through <laughs> because they're panels. I don't know if any of you have ever seen a movie where somebody falls through a ceiling, but it is pretty embarrassing. So I'm like hanging from the wires and it's, it's, it's just awful. I thrash free and I run out the fire exit which just sets off an incredible amount of alarms. 
and because I will not be stopped, I run over to the neighboring building, I kick their back door in, and I don't know how I did this. I found the keys to everything, and I, I found like a bunch of money, and by this time, the Sitka police are completely bewildered. Like, they, like, they're like, what the hell is this guy doing? They have the building completely surrounded, and I try to kick my way out of the bathroom, like, wall. I don't remember doing this. The damages list shows that I, I made it pretty far. <laughs> and uh, so, and needless to say, I got arrested. And uh, it was the best thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> I, I was able to really get some time to just look at things, and a lot of time. It's been a year and three months, and I haven't touched anything, and oh, my life has changed in ways that I would have never thought possible. Accidents do happen. It wasn't what I planned, but falling through that ceiling allowed me to fall into this life, and I'm very happy, so. So our next speaker is Libby Bacalar. She was born and raised in New York City, and she came to Juneau from Palmer, Alaska in 2006. She works as a lawyer in the civil division of the Attorney General's office, and in her spare time enjoys downhill skiing, blogging, and spending time with her husband, Jeff Kirsch, her daughter, Paige, and her son, Isaac. I have a 1998 Honda Civic that still lives at my parents' house in the Bronx. That car has been through a lot, several cross-country trips and a few fender benders, <clears throat> none very serious so far, fortunately. I pride myself on being a careful driver. Still, I was behind the wheel for at least two of these accidents. One of them was in late September 2001 on my way to visit a friend in Vermont. I merged with traffic off an exit outside Boston and sideswiped an 18-wheeler in the process because I was being inattentive. I wasn't on my cell phone or texting, there was no texting then, and I wasn't changing the radio station or eating a cheeseburger or anything like that. I was just distracted and probably lost. It was Boston after Google, before Google Maps, after all. The truck driver was kind to me, even though the accident was my fault. The damage to my little Civic was minor, all things considered, and his, and his outsized rig suffered only a few scrapes. But it was a hassle for him and scary for me. I called my dad, who else, and asked him to rescue me from three hours away. I pulled into the parking lot of a nearby convenience store and waited. Two weeks earlier, I left my apartment in Brooklyn as usual for my job at a city agency in the financial district. I'd eaten a bowl of Life cereal for breakfast after deciding the cold I was fighting wasn't worth staying home for. I was sitting at my cubicle, talking on the phone, when a coworker came up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder. A plane just hit the World Trade Center, she whispered into the ear that wasn't attached to the phone. I put my hand over the receiver and glanced up at her. What do you mean, like a Skyline tourist type plane? I asked, totally confident of the answer. Sorry. Actually, no, she said. Supposedly it's a 747, must be a bad accident. Our office was on the second floor of a nondescript medium-sized building on Rector Street a block east of the West Side Highway and Hudson River, and about four short blocks south of the World Trade Center's Twin Towers. We hustled downstairs and joined a growing cloud of, crowd of gawkers. Everyone was standing outside with their necks craned up at a gaping hole in the North Tower. That hole looked like a portal to hell, with flames shooting out and paper cascading through the air and down to the street like confetti. What appeared to be the engine of a large jet plane had landed intact just a few feet from the front door I'd strolled into, a half hour earlier. I estimated it was about 15 feet tall. 
don't go over there, another onlooker said to me as if I was planning to. They're saying there are body parts there. My eyes remain fixed on the flaming hole. <clears throat> a few stick figure shapes tumbled out from time to time amidst the fluttering paper. Could those be people, I asked myself. No way, again confident in the answer to my own question. Suddenly a low frequency hum sounded overhead and began to grow louder. A flash of an airplane was briefly visible in the narrow gaps of bright blue sky between several office buildings. And then the loudest sound I'd ever heard overtook the world. It was a sound with its own gravity, <clears throat> a true stereo surround sound that wasn't something you heard from the outside so much as felt from within. The group of gawkers and gapers, myself included, abandoned the stun shock we'd been standing in not two seconds prior and transitioned to an organized panic. This wasn't an accident after all. Someone was really mad at someone here. Yes, that was the painfully obvious observation that crossed my mind right then. I ran upstairs to grab my keys and wallet. I don't think we're going back to work today, I told my coworker, my second brilliant observation in as many seconds. To the west was the highway and water, parts of airplanes and worse. To the south was more water. To the north was an inferno. There was only one way to go, <clears throat> east to the Brooklyn Bridge toward home. Sirens blared from every direction and helicopters whirred overhead. People rushed instinctively eastward in an anxious herd that seemed on the verge of erupting into a dangerous mob at any minute. By the time I reached the Brooklyn Bridge, I was with two different coworkers, both of whom, like me, were in their early 20s at the time. We hopped a railing to the pedestrian walkway of the bridge and helped as many other people as we could over the barrier. A man walking the other way mumbled something about a car bomb in Washington, DC. I was annoyed at him for spreading rumors and panic. I'm glad I wore sensible shoes today, I thought to myself. We began a mass exodus toward Brooklyn. We were toward the middle of the bridge when the bridge began to tremble and we turned around. The South Tower, the second hit, was the first to fall <clears throat> and it fell in spectacular fashion. Really, there's no other word for it. No frame of reference for the human mind and eye to process the sight, sound, and smell of a 100-story skyscraper groaning, buckling, and flattening straight to the ground leaving behind an impenetrable cloud of dust and smoke. In an instant, that jewel of the New York City skyline, only a few older, years older than me, and seemingly immortal, had simply ceased to exist. Grief and its twin sister, shock, rushed in, but there was no time. An earthquake followed that probably lasted about 10 seconds, so it felt like more. The bridge shook harder, and I began to entertain the possibility of its collapse as I quickly surveyed the cables I was sure I'd be clinging to at any moment. I turned to my coworker. Are we going to die? I asked her. I was really racking up the stupid questions and observations today. Of course not, she scoffed. We can't die. We're too young. She didn't sound convinced of her own assurances, but whatever. I'd take it. <clears throat> because for those 10 seconds on the Brooklyn Bridge, I was 100% convinced I was about to die. Time stood still and everything was quiet. I felt calm and at peace. I felt ready to fight for survival, but I also felt ready to accept whatever was about to happen to my body. In those 10 seconds, my view of death changed forever. The end result is that I'm no longer afraid of that moment. I'm afraid of dying for many other reasons, of course, but not the actual moment of death, or at least not in the same way. When I think of that moment on the Brooklyn Bridge, I think of everyone who's died in a sudden and gruesome way, both on 9-11 and in countless other acts of war around the world, whether by accident or because of the deliberate violence humanity has always inflicted upon itself. It makes me hopeful that maybe these people did not actually die in abject terror and despair, as circumstances would suggest, but that rather, at least at the end, 
They were simply at peace and ready to transition from this world to whatever might or might not lie beyond it. Back at the rest stop near Boston, I cried in the driver's seat of my damaged Honda Civic. I cried in frustration at the ridiculousness of this car accident in light of everything I just experienced. My parents' next door neighbor and friend, Bill McGinn was his name, was a lieutenant in the first fire company to respond to the World Trade Center. He was married with two young kids and he never came home. My office building wouldn't reopen for almost two months and when it did, uh, acrid air still hung like a pall over lower Manhattan. I was three weeks away from my 24th birthday. My dad showed up and I was on my way home. I was lucky and I knew it. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on December 9, 2014 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Accidents Happen. Curious? Visit www.mudrooms.org. Our next speaker is Paul DeSlover. Paul was born in 1948 on a bitterly cold January morning in Monroe, Michigan, and from birth longed for a big brother. Ten minutes later, his prayers were answered when his twin, <laughs> Dale, exited the womb two and a half pounds heavier. From that moment on, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> big difference. From that moment on, Paul occasionally regretted that neonatal, that neonatal wish as he languished in the shadow of a twin who was always bigger, smarter, better looking, and more athletic. However, when it came to harebrained ideas, Dale could not hold a candle to his older brother, Paul. And Paul has a special guest. I think our youngest audience member tonight is five-week-old Nora, his granddaughter. She's in the back. She's really cute. Please help me welcome Paul. Okay, my story tonight is about how I accidentally came to live in Juneau, Alaska. It was April 1974, and I was sitting in a bar with my younger brother, Steve, and a friend, Kevin. And after a couple drinks, we decided that we were going to buy road bikes and ride our bikes from Monroe, Michigan to Fairbanks, Alaska. So a couple of weeks later, we went into the Bob's Bike Store and told him of our intentions. And he said, I'll tell you what, boys. He said, I'll give you a 15% discount on your bikes and all your equipment if you'll let me contact the Monroe newspaper and have them do a story on your trip. And without thinking or thinking of the ramifications, we said, sure. So he said, well, the bikes you want are going to take a couple weeks to get here, but I'll give you a call. So we went back home, and at the end of April, we got a call from Bob, and we thought, good, our bikes are in. And he said, well, the bikes aren't in, but the newspaper reporter wants to meet with you guys and get some background and find out what your plans are. So we said, okay. So we met with the reporter for about an hour and a half. And about a week later, we get another call from Bob in May. He says, hey, your bikes are in. So we went down, we picked up our bikes. And we were a little concerned that we hadn't had any training, but we figured our youth and, and our exuberance might get us through. And we were planning to leave town on June 1st. So we didn't have much time to train. In fact, we only rode maybe two or three rides of 10, 15 miles is all. <laughs> and so June 1st came, and we were all packed up for the first time, our gear on our bikes for the very first time. And, and uh, we were surrounded by friends and family and the newspaper reporter and now a newspaper photographer. And to all kinds of fanfare, we mount our bikes, our Fuji S10s, 
and head out of town, heading north into a strong wind in the first leg of our 4,200-mile trip. <laughs> we intended on, on, on riding for about three hours. We figured we'd be about 45 miles down the road at this nice little campsite. And as it turned out, because of the strong wind and, and our lack of preparation, uh, it took us almost six hours to get to the campsite. And when we got there, we got off the bikes, and Kevin said, man, what were we thinking? <laughs> and I said, I don't know what I was thinking, but I'm thinking now we better come up with some other options. <laughs> and my brother brought us back to reality. He says, hey, boys, in two hours, every house in Monroe is going to have a newspaper on their doorstep heralding our trip to Alaska. He said, you know what that means? And with a big grin, he said, we can't go home. <laughs> and Kevin, we pause for a minute, and Kevin says, man, we are royally screwed. <laughs> so that was the beginning of our trip. We, we unpacked our gear, put up our tents, crawled inside, and we were so disillusioned, I don't even think we ate that night. In the morning, we woke up, realized it wasn't a bad dream, and we were, in fact, in a hell of our own making. <laughs> so we got on our bikes eventually. We went 15 miles that day. The winds, the winds were even worse. And we found a nice little roadside park, stopped, set up our tents, and we're wondering what is going to happen. The next day, we felt a little better. The winds were a little less harsh, and we actually did about 50 miles. Within about six days, we had got about 200 miles into, into central Michigan, into a town. <laughs> and so we took off, and we actually did, we started doing a little better after that. And so we went up to the middle of lower Michigan, went over the Mackinac Bridge, the bridge that connects the two, upper and lower Michigan, went up to Saint, Sault Ste. Marie, and turned, turned west and headed across the state on Route 2. So anyway, we continued across. We got all the way across Michigan into Wisconsin, and we're heading across from uh, across Wisconsin, and we had all kinds of adventures during that period, but we were meandering a lot, so we weren't making the time we had hoped to make. We had planned to be in Fairbanks by mid-August. And so, so we go all across Wisconsin, then we go across Minnesota, and the whole time the wind's in our face. There wasn't a day where there wasn't wind in our face. But unbelievably, our, we were getting stronger and more capable of riding, so we were doing pretty well. We were averaging about 65 to 75 miles a day by then. And we stopped in this little town called Rugby, North Dakota, claimed to fame as the geographical center of North America. And we went into the geographical center cafe, and we were, of course, skinny, bearded, long hair, wearing cut-off blue jeans and tank tops. And the waitress said, what do you boys, what do you boys like? And I said, well, I'd like a cheeseburger and fries and ditto for my companions. And we finished that. She said, well, can I get you any dessert? And I said, well, I'd like another cheeseburger and fries. <laughs> and and my, ditto for my companions. And we got done with that. And she said, well, I'm sure you don't want any dessert, boys. And I said, well, I don't know. The menu said you had fresh apple pie. Is it fresh apple pie? She says, oh, yeah, we bake them here every day. And I said, do you have more than one? <laughs> and she said, yeah. And I said, though, so can I buy one? And then she got real skeptical and she said, listen, are you guys planning to pay for this? And we said, yeah, yeah, we'll pay for it. So turns out all three of us got a whole apple pie. 
And then we got out on our bikes and we rode for 80 miles. That day, we did 125 miles. And so we got on our bikes and we rode off. So we get across uh, North Dakota, we go up into Minot, and we went from Minot to a place called Portal on Saskatchewan border. And we go up, we head, head uh, north uh, up Saskatchewan to Highway 1 in Canada, get on Highway 1 in Canada and uh, cross the plains uh, into Alberta and cross Alberta into Banff, up the Bow Pass really slow down the bow pass really fast. We were fast passing every car on the road and the speed limit was 40 miles an hour. Up the Sun Wapta Pass really slow. Down the Sun Wapta Pass really fast. And into Jasper. From Jasper we continued on to St. George. And we were all excited because we were gonna, after leaving St. George, we were gonna be on the Alcan. And so we were, that morning we left St. George, we only got about a mile. And we were stopped by the RCMP, had the road blocked, and they were stopping everybody. And he came up to us, he said, where are you boys going? We said, well, we're riding our bikes to Fairbanks, Alaska. And he said, not on this road, you ain't. We're thinking, what? Are we breaking the law? What's going on? And he said, the road's been totally washed out, and it's going to be, you know, a couple weeks before it's passable, and probably for longer for a bike. And we said, well, boy, what do we do? We're going to Fairbanks. He said, well, go to ride your bikes to Prince Rupert, get on a ferry there, an Alaska ferry, get a ticket to Haines, get off on Haines, go up the Haines Highway, and you can connect with the Alaskan Highway again. We had never heard of Southeast Alaska. We didn't even know it existed. <laughs> so we were so far behind on our schedule, because this was July 31st, that we uh, decided to board a train in St. George, and we got on a train and, and rode the train all the way to Prince Rupert, uh, or Prince George, and rode all the way to Prince Rupert, and got there just in time to catch the morning ferry. And we're on the ferry, we go you know, to Ketchikan, it's raining. We go to Wrangell, it's raining. We go to Petersburg, it's raining. We're coming into Juneau in the morning and we're coming up the channel and it was gorgeous. The sun's rising over the mountains. And it was like paradise and we're all mesmerized. We said, you know what, let's get off here for a couple hours because you could. And so we got off and after about an hour we said, you know what, let's go get our bikes and get off here for a few days. Because in those days, you could get a ticket from A to D, and you could get off in B and C as long as you wanted. So we got, went back on the ferry, got our bikes off, and after four or five days of sunshine, we were totally hooked on Juno. <laughs> so we decided to stay, and so we went over to the federal building where they knew that we, they had a, a payphone and decided to call our families and let them know what was up because we had, had very little contact with our families till then. The only time we contacted them was we'd call, make a collect call, say, I'd like to make a collect call operator. She goes, okay, give me the number, uh, 2412534, and who's calling? Paul. She would connect the call, and they'd say, we have a collect call from Paul. Will you accept the charges? And they would say, no. And the operator would say, I'm sorry, Paul, they won't accept the charges. And I'd say, well, it's Paul from Minot, Minnesota, or Minot, North Dakota. And they would go, sorry, still won't collect, accept the charges. So we were just, that's how we let them know where we were <laughs> and, and that we were safe. But I digress. So we go into the federal building, we get, get on the pay phone, and I called home and got my mom on the phone. And I said, hey, guess what? We've decided to stay in Juneau, Alaska for a while. It's a beautiful place here. And she said, well, aren't you going to go on to Fairbanks? And we said, oh, probably not. I think we're just going to stay here, at least for some amount of time. And I said, but I, you know, I kind of feel bad because they did that story on us in the Minority News. 
And she said, well, you know what? And I said, what? She said, they never ran the story. <laughs> and I said, what? She says, no. She said, they ran a story at the same time about three other boys from Monroe who were riding their bikes from Monroe to California and back. I said, I'll be darned. I got off the phone and my brother and Kevin said, what was that all about? I said, Monroe News never ran the story on our bike trip to Fairbanks. And we looked at each other and almost simultaneously said, we could have gone home. Our next speaker tonight is Maya Wolf. Maya grew up in Washington State where she spent most of her free time practicing cello, biking, or backpacking. After moving to Hawaii for university, she immediately started to miss polar fleece, snow-covered mountains, and seasons, and was excited to return to the Pacific Northwest where she moved to Juneau about a year ago. She is extremely happy to be back to music and playing outside as she continues to navigate her newest adventure. All right, so I grew up in Bainbridge Island, Washington, um, which is now a destination. It is a place where young power couples come home after they work their extremely successful jobs in Seattle, um, and they pour themselves a glass of locally sourced wine, and they lead a life that intimidates the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> but when I was there growing up, it was completely different. Um, the normal local uniform were these cotton hoodies from the local feed store that had rows of different barnyard animals, and you would collect them in high school. You would have like a red one with roosters on it, sorry, um, or a blue one with pigs on it, um, and it was like a status symbol. Um, yeah. I grew up thinking that llama sitting was as normal as house sitting um, or dog sitting because that's what my neighbors had for pets. Um, and even though it was a town of 20,000 people, it felt like a small town to me. Um, you knew everybody. You might not know their name, you might not know intimate details about their life, but you recognized their faces and you picked up little things about them as you were moving around. Um, you would know so-and-so had always went to the store and got a vanilla latte in the morning, or you would know that so-and-so went on the gym um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and that was their schedule. Um, and having those little connections with people was great because there was just this wonderful sense of community and support. Um, of course, I needed individuals for community and support as well. And one of those individuals was my friend Eileen, is my friend Eileen. Um, she is the mother of my best friend. And I met her when I was three. And so I love her because I grew up with her. Um, we started going on backpacking trips when we were five, and so she got to see all of the trial and error of me out there getting wet and cold and grumpy and learning to deal with it. Um, and she also helped raise me. I would go to her house a lot after school. Another reason that she is so special to me is we have um, a way of communicating that doesn't work for me and most people. She is sarcastic, she is dry, she is pointed, and it works so well for us because she never has to worry about offending me and I never have to worry about offending her. Um, I was not known for being a careful child. Um, I am drawn towards things that scare the hell out of me, which is why I'm here in front of a huge crowd tonight. Um, <laughs> And it took me a while to strike the balance between being careful and taking chances. Um, and so those first couple of years of taking too many chances and not being careful enough gave me a little bit of a reputation in my friend group. And as I got older and I tried new things and I got better, um, I started to be more cautious. 
But that was a reputation that I didn't live down with a lot of people, especially with her. Um, and that's something that stuck with me until I got to high school. She would give me so much crap about it um, in any aspect of my life. And her favorite thing to harp on was when I got my driver's license, she was officially getting off the roads. She was not going to be anywhere near me when I was behind the wheel of the car. So I got to university, not to university, I got to high school, and I had two milestones that a lot of people experience in high school. The first one was that I got a car. Um, I inherited it when I was 15, and for probably about 20 minutes, I was really excited. I had a car, I was mobile, and then I remembered that I lived on an island and that the closest um, driver's ed class was three towns away. So I was left with the choice of getting up at five in the morning to do driver's ed before high school or to wait till I was 18. So I parked the car in my garage for three years, and uh, <laughs> yep, 18th birthday rolled around. Eileen gave me a lot of uh, crap about my driving, my test coming up. I uh, got the car, went out three towns away, took my test, passed it on the first try, take that Eileen, and um, I just felt awesome. I was on top of the world. I was at a point that most of my peers had been at two years prior, but I didn't care because I had a car and I was mobile and I had this milestone behind me. And as I was crossing back over the bridge to my island, I felt amazing. Nothing could stop me. About a mile later, my car was on fire. <laughs> um, I looked forward and I saw flames coming out of the wheel well, and I pulled over and I saw flames coming from under the hood. And I got out of the car and I called 911 and I looked back and my tire was on fire. And there were people passing by, this is on a highway, and I'm freaking out and I call my mom and people are passing by and the fire brigade comes and people are passing by and I'm just like crying and hysteric and I don't know how to deal with this, I've never been in a car before by myself, I'm 18, I shouldn't be dealing with this, people are passing by. <laughs> oh my gosh, finally everything calms down. Um, they extinguish my car and that should never have to be said. Um, but they extinguished my car. Um, and they figured out what the problem was. While I had not been using it for those three years, there was a family of mice that had been using it. And they had taken all of the hay and the threads and the lint that was in our garage, and they had built themselves a little home under the hood. And then I had driven their home three towns away and three towns back, and it had caught on fire. Um, and I know very little about mechanics, but I do know that there are a lot of things under the hood of a car that can catch on fire when there is a flammable thing there. Um, so it, they did. Um, when I got home, it took a while to calm down. That, it, that was a really hard thing for me. I had never had an accident like that before. Um, for me, accidents had always been cause and effect. So I did something and there was a direct outcome. Um, I had never had this middleman of like a car or something that I didn't understand. Um, and so it was something that I was really struggling with. And I got home and I turned on my cell phone and it was full of voicemails um, because I lived in a small town. There were people who cared about me. Everyone who had passed who knew me called me. There were, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> There were voicemails from my friends, there were voicemails from my dentist, there were voicemails from my favorite barista, there were voicemails from my teachers. Um, there were just all these voicemails and they all said the same thing, which is, we saw you, we hope you're okay, if there's something we can do, just like let us know, we're not sure what happened, but your car was on fire and you were crying. <laughs> and I felt really guilty. Like all of these people were taking time out of their day to extend this help to me, 
But I had caused this fire because I didn't check under the hood. And so it was really, it was this weird struggle of emotions. And it lasted for a couple of days until I saw Eileen. And uh, we sat down and we had a cup of tea and I very hesitantly brought up the subject of my car. And her response was exactly what I needed. Her response was not, oh, it's okay, like we're so glad you weren't hurt. It wasn't this really caring, compassionate thing. It was a response that made me realize that accidents happen and ridiculous moments happen and that's okay. And her response was to throw back her head and say, I told you so. Okay, so our next speaker is Seth Smith. And Seth was born in a small town of 3,000 in western Montana and has lived most of his life there. He also spent a year or two growing up in both Houston and Florida, yet for the love of Rocky Mountains and family always drew him back to Montana. Seth primarily enjoys outdoor activities and creating things with his hands. He spent the past few years working and schooling, trying to fit playtime in anywhere possible. Seth graduated as an electrical engineer last May and within a week was on a flight to Juneau to explore and work in this beautiful state. He now spends his time following his passions of biking, skiing, running, climbing, drumming, and getting used to actually having room for activities in his evenings again. Seth believes that our main purpose in life is to help others. He plans to use his education and creativity to one day create better tools for the medical industry. Please help me welcome Seth. All right, so I asked my family what I should do for, for this story when I figured out it was all about accidents. And they literally emailed me a list. Each person emailed me a list. They said, oh, there's dozens of accidents that you've done that would be, that'd be perfect for this. So go ahead and just let me just brainstorm here and lay down a whole paragraph of things that you could talk about. So I'm just going to go with one that my brother came up with. Uh, I came from a small town of about 3,000. I went to a, a college that was just about 50 miles away from there, the University of Montana in Missoula. And so about my second year in the winter, I was driving a Jeep and the brakes on it started squealing pretty bad when I'd stop. Just a horrible squeal would erupt from the wheels any times I tried, tried to press the brakes. So being the stereotypical Montanan, I would want to fix everything myself before I brought it to a mechanic. I would fix it with duct tape if I had to, just to not bring it to a mechanic and be able to say that I did it myself. So. I ended up grabbing the tools one Sunday, midday, grab, grab all the brake pads and the rotors, and my buddy Sean, and we end up finding the closest garage that we, can, that we can get into that's warm and free. It's 50 miles away in my hometown of Hamilton. So we drive down there, and it takes me about three hours to replace my brakes. Everything's going just fine. Um, get everything done. It, it all works as far as I know. Um, and so then we, before we leave town, we decide to stop over at this little steakhouse at the edge of town and grab a bite to eat. So it's late on a Sunday night. There's not really too many people out in this small town. I end up trying to park in a parking spot. And when I press the brake, it feels like concrete. It doesn't move one bit. And so I just put all my weight on, onto the brake there. And my Jeep rolls about eight feet and then finally stops. And so I look bewildered at my buddy Sean in the passenger seat and put it in reverse and just drive back and park in the spot. Well, Sean's a medicinal marijuana patient, and so before we go in for dinner, he, he wants to medicate himself. So I leave him to his own devices, and I go in and grab us a table. And 
Then he comes in shortly after. We get a big meal and a couple beers. And uh, so we, we're over eating meal, and uh, we start talking, well, what's, what could have been the issue? And we kind of figure out, well, the brakes probably weren't properly bled. And so we realize that, well, it's coming up on 9, 10 o'clock at night. We both have things going on the next morning. We just got to kind of figure this out and just be really careful driving home. Apparently, if you just jam on the brake long enough, it will stop eventually. <laughs> and so, so we finish our meal and get out in the parking lot. And I drive around the parking lot. It's empty by this point a couple times, do a couple test stops. They're stopping. We're fine. OK, good. So 50 mile, about an hour long trip. We're driving out of town, and we see a Dairy Queen on the side. And so we say, hey, you know, it's a long trip. He's medicated, so we should uh, stop over and just pick up some, some ice cream before we take off. It's actually pretty busy for a Dairy Queen on a Sunday night. And so we pull in, and there is one spot right in front of the doors at the Dairy Queen. <laughs> and so I'm pulling in there, and I try and press the brake. Same thing. There might as well have been a cinder block underneath the brake pedal, because it was not moving. And so the whole thing kind of happened in slow motion. My front, my front tires roll over the curb, over the sidewalk, and just my car just burst through the front doors of this Dairy Queen. And same thing, I go about eight feet, and then the car finally stops. And so I just immediately just back up, get in the parking spot. And this is surreal. This is completely surreal. So my heart is just pounding as fast as it can. And we look in the, in the windows, and everybody's still just doing their thing. Nobody even really noticed. And so we both think to each other, we don't say anything, but we both think, should we just back out and just speed away? Just go hide in the dark of the winter night? And before we can even say a word to each other, I'm already getting out of the car, walking up to the front doors. Turns out that it's closed already, and because I try and open the doors, and they're locked, but all the glass is shattered out, so I can just reach in and open the door and let myself in. So I go in there, and I eventually find a manager and talk to the manager. And uh, the manager takes down all my information, tells me she needs to call the cops because she needs to file the accident report. And so me and Sean help ourselves with some dilly bars while we're waiting for the cop to show up. <laughs> so we end up meeting the officers out front. And fortunately, at this point in my life, I had my EMT certification. So that meant I had a little card in my wallet. But more importantly, I had big plates that said across the bottom of them, EMT, emergency EMT the same plates you'd see on any ambulance driving around any part, of, uh, any part of Montana. And I actually hadn't been working as an EMT for about six months. It was the summer prior that I had been doing that. And so I was able to, uh, when the cops showed up, the first thing they asked me was, so where are you an EMT out of? And so I shyly reply, uh, Missoula County, but I haven't been, I'm not currently practicing. And so, then I kind of just quickly explained my story about my faulty brakes and how I'm no good at changing brakes, apparently. And then the next thing that the cop asked me is, every driver's worst nightmare. So, how much have you had to drink tonight? And to where I, I, I immediately just, I can still point to the steakhouse. I said, I had just one beer right there with my meal. And uh, that was it. I just left it at that. And the cop, Riley, says to me, yeah, I can smell it on you. And so then, at that point, I just need to go get my, my registration. And I don't know if he's going to breathalyze me. I'm not really too worried about it, because I really only did have one beer. And I, but I probably did smell like it. And I was just, I was, I'm sure I was sweating profusely. And so I go over to the passenger side of my car and get out my, my registration and my insurance. And when I open the door, I, I have the officer right there. And he, he stops me, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a heavy smell of marijuana emanating from your car right now. To where that point, I just step back. 
And I let my buddy Sean just, he jumps in and says, oh yeah, well I'm legally entitled to smoke in the passenger seat of a car, yada, yada, yada. So he does his, he does his spiel. And at this moment I realize the picture that's being painted in the officer's heads. <laughs> These young college hoodlums drive 50 miles to another town, get drunk and stoned, and just drive through the front of an ice cream shop. <laughs> this is the start of a really bad joke. And so I, I realized at that exact moment that I need to take handle of this situation and kind of guide the reality that's actually occurring right there. <laughs> and so I, I immediately just re-explained the whole story. Don't bring beer or, or anything else into it, because really that had very little to do with this accident. I wasn't drinking when I changed my brakes or anything like that, <laughs> thankfully. And, and so... And when everything kind of finished up, it took me about an hour from when I burst through the front of the Dairy Queen to when the cops let me off scot-free, basically, just driving home in, with my brakes halfway functional. You know, they just kind of said, good luck to you, man, and sent me on my way. You're an EMT. You get hurt, you can figure it out, you know. And so about a, about a week later, I get a bill in the mail from, is that seven minutes? Okay, I get, a, I get a bill in the mail from Dairy Queen that's about three grand. And so that's actually, uh, you know, the cost of the door and everything. And so basically, this, what should have saved me about $300 ended up costing me roughly 10 times that much. <laughs> but it was really a good lesson. And that's something with having so many accidents in your life, you get good at kind of dealing with situations off the cuff like this. I think there's really a lot to be said for that. For, the people that actually experience accidents and the people that put themselves in the place where accidents can happen to you, there's a lot to be said for people like that. It's a great character building activity. And I truly encourage each one of you to get out there and let some accidents happen to you. Thank you so much. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on December 9th, 2014. The theme for the evening was Accidents Happen. To tell your story or to find out when you can attend the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Steve Suing and Alita Bus. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night.